All right, if you have your Bible, turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, please take use and make use of the uh, Bible located in the seat rack right in front of you. Turn to about page 708, 709, right around there, and you'll find where we are at. We are in the midst of a study of the Gospel of Mark that we began in September. We're going to be taking a little break now uh, for the months of December and January, and we will be back uh, in the flow uh, in Mark back again in February. And remember as we're studying the Gospel of Mark here that we are more than just simply interacting with a biography of Jesus, or a history account of Jesus, or any of those kinds of things. When we are coming to the gospel, we are actually interacting. The gospel is the very, embedded in the gospel is the very power and presence of the living God. And so when we interact here with the text, it's more than just text. We are actually engaging the living God. And He is engaging us. And so this morning, as we come to the Word, I want you to have that in your heart and mind to to understand that more than just simply some words being spoken, we are in the presence of the living God who has a Word to speak into our lives today. And the word that he wants to bring to us today is a word that I've simply entitled true family. You see, this gospel is bringing to us and bringing us into a place of radical shift, radical Shift. Now, if you remember, the word radical means something different than most of us think. The word radical literally means a returning to the root. And what Jesus does over and over again in the gospel is he goes back to the root and dislodges and repositions us from the drifted place which we've found ourselves in, and he sort of brings us back forcefully to reality and reveals the deep truths of the kingdom. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at true change, We looked at true freedom. And this morning, here on this Thanksgiving morning, probably quite appropriate for us to be looking at this issue of true family. In Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35, it tells us that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, They sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. 
It tells us in one of the other gospel accounts that Jesus then took his hand and and sort of gestured around him while he asked this question, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All right, we need to back up just a little bit in the text to get a little bit of context to what's going on here. So I'm going to just take you back a few verses. Come to verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Now the house is not named here, but it's likely quite likely that it could perhaps be the house of Peter and Andrew in Capernaum. And we've seen for the last couple of chapters Jesus interacting with a variety of different groups of people. We've seen him interacting with Pharisees, teachers of the law. We've seen him interacting with John the Baptist's disciples, his own disciples, the crowds. In fact, the crowds have grown so thick and they've pressed in so hard that Jesus, in general, is no longer even able to go into the synagogues. He's, he's out in a boat. He's out in a level place somewhere. He's out somewhere where there's plenty of room for those crowds to gather for him to teach. But here he is in a home and a crowd is pressing in around him. And then it says... Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. His family has come from Nazareth. His mother and his brothers. And in case you wonder and you've been confused about whether Jesus had brothers, It tells us in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't all of his sisters with us? So Jesus has these half-brothers and sisters. Because his father, of course, is not Joseph, but God. And Mary, his mother. And he has these half-brothers and half-sisters. And here in Mark 3, his family has come to him. They've made the journey from Capernaum, from Nazareth to Capernaum, to take charge of Jesus. Now, why? Because in their minds, Jesus is out of his mind. Now, remember, there's some cultural context here that's significant and important for us to understand. Anybody who has come from a culture, probably many cultures other than American culture or Western culture, those of you coming from non-Western cultures, know that the eldest brother has a very specific and significant responsibility in his family. When the father dies, and because we have no mention of Joseph here, it's likely that Joseph has now passed on. As the eldest brother, Jesus 
has responsibility for the care and covering of his family. But Jesus has gotten so caught up in this mission that he thinks he's on that he doesn't even sometimes have time to eat. He's not sleeping. He's out sometimes overnight out in the wilderness. It's clear that some kind of psychological breakdown has happened in Jesus' life. And so his family, out of loving concern, not just for Jesus, but for themselves, (laughs) have come to Jesus to take charge of him. Now, the word there is literally arrest. They've literally come to take him by the hand and bring him back home where he belongs. And then there's this pause while we get the next scene that happens. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now these teachers of the law who have come down from Jerusalem are not there sort of on some sort of a casual visit They have been sent by the Sanhedrin, the chief Jewish court, to do an investigation about around this itinerant rabbi who seems to have the whole city of Capernaum under his spell. And they've come to investigate whether his teachings are in fact heretical. And when they arrive, it doesn't even tell... You know, we don't know how long they've been there. We don't know how long they've been investigating. But they've already come up with their accusations. And the charges against Jesus are twofold. One, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Two, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. One is he's possessed by Satan. The second is all of these works that he's doing, all of these miracles, all these exorcisms that are happening, they are happening Through the power of Satan. Now Jesus points out the large semi-truck in their logic. How can Satan, he he called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Okay. Here's what Jesus says. Well, if Satan's divided against himself, if he's driving himself out, well, he's crazy. (laughs) In his house, his kingdom is not going to stand. But in fact... 
If one has come and has tied up the strong man, and Jesus has come, and he is the one who has taken captivity captive, he is the one who has bound up the strong man, and released and delivered those who are in captivity. Jesus says, you are accusing me of driving out demons. Satan is the author of death and destruction and despair and all of those things. And you're saying that, in fact, I am the author of life and hope and freedom. And then he says those words that sort of make all of our hearts tremble. I tell you the truth. All the sins of blasphemies and men will be forgiven them. That's the wonderful promise. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. Now let me just be very clear about what this sin is. This is not a sin that you accidentally fall into. You don't just happen along into it one day and go, and suddenly, oh well. No. It is a settled, consistent resistance and rebellion against God where you've turned your heart and face against Him and in fact call the very things of God the things of the enemy. And if you're worried that you've committed it, you haven't committed it because you're worried about it. If you'd committed it, you wouldn't be worried. In this passage and in the previous passages and where we're going to now, we see these encounters that are happening with Jesus. And I would encourage you to get the CD from last week or listen online to it to kind of catch the fullness because I'm just going to list them out here. There are three encounters with Jesus that we have. One is a truth encounter. A second is a power encounter. And the third is an allegiance encounter. And this is really the encounter that Jesus' family and all of those that are here around in this home are having right now at this point. And it's the encounter that you and I will have. You may be having it here this morning. You are likely, all of us have this repeatedly in our life, and it's an allegiance encounter, and that is, who are we going to serve? Who are we going to submit our lives to? Who is going to be in control? And so there's this allegiance encounter, and Jesus says when they ask, now, now we're coming up to our text. And Jesus' and brother, mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. You better come on out. They're looking for you. Now again, cultural context here. Filial loyalty is extremely strong. Familial, you know, and, and, and respect would say, Jesus, your mother is calling you. When mama calls, you better get up and go to mama. Because if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, okay? They're looking for you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? And he uses this as a teaching moment. 
And he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So here Jesus goes to a radical... Now this is radical, people. In a society, in a cultural setting, in a religious setting, where familial ties are everything... Who you are born, family you're born into, all of those connections, those are the essential ingredient of who you are as a person. That's your identity. And now, Jesus says, here's your true family. Is no longer rooted in your genealogy. Your true family is rooted in relationship to me, Jesus says. Now this week, as I was studying this passage, early in the week, I was studying it earlier in the week because, of course, with the holiday and all of those sorts of things coming up, I was preparing well in advance. And on Wednesday morning, I woke up And there was a scripture just surging in my spirit. I just woke up with this phrase, these phrases just resonating in my spirit. And the basis of what I want to unpack for you in the rest of our time here this morning to describe what this true family is. And it comes out of the scripture, well-known scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord then. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And this is the phrase that was just pounding in my spirit. It was like a heartbeat just going in my spirit. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you've read that before. Perhaps you've heard that before. But it was just sort of this repeating refrain, just resonating deep in the chambers of my heart. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So let's look at that just a little bit closer. One body. Just a little bit earlier in Ephesians, Paul writes these radical words. I mean, this is like, this is really radical stuff. He says, remember that at the time, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is amazing. You see, for a Jewish person living in the first century, the world was divided into two, two people groups. Jews, and everybody else, Gentiles. And Jews were family, and the Gentiles 
we're not family. Because the Jews were the people of God and everybody else was not the people of God. And Paul comes in here, building on what Jesus is saying about true family, and says, through the cross, this dividing wall, this hostility between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and everyone else, has been destroyed, abolished, annihilated. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? How many have heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? Okay. This week, um, Tom Astrike sent me his notes. He's preaching in Minneapolis this morning at our Minneapolis campus. And he had insight about this that was so helpful for me. And I want to share it with you because it's just, it just brings this point home about being one body. This phrase, he writes, has completely lost its original covenant-related meaning. Today it's interpreted as meaning that blood-related family members are to be considered as more important than anyone else. Blood is thicker than water is a German proverb. Originally, Blut ist dicker als Wasser. Which is also, yeah, I butchered that, but which is also common in English-speaking countries. It generally means that the bonds of family and common ancestry are stronger than those bonds between unrelated people, such as friendship. However, the original meaning is this. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. My relationship with those whom I am joined together in covenant with is to be considered of more value than the relationship with a brother with whom I have, may have shared a womb. The Middle Eastern saying is, blood is thicker than milk. It says that covenant relationships are more important than family or mother milk relationships. We're one body because of the blood of Christ. And that's thicker than water. Now, some of us have the joy of, you know, my parents, of course, are believers. So we're not only, they're not only my mom and dad, they're my brother and sister in Christ. So we have both blood and water relationship. But some of you don't have that privilege. And perhaps your family doesn't. And, and you've discovered that, that blood really is thicker than water. And that your relationship with your family, your church family, can even be more significant and substantive than your relationship with your human family. One body, one spirit. I love this scripture. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There is one Spirit that unites us. 
Because that spirit within us calls out, Abba, Father. And whatever language, culture, age, gender, background, whatever we are from, there is that cry that unites us. One of the things that I discovered, and I didn't, I didn't realize that this would happen until it happened, <laughs> was when I first opened the door to start traveling several years ago. And I remember going to Tanzania to Stephen Jan Rasmussen to teach at the Bible school there. Ken was with me. And I told Steve at the end of the trip, I said, I didn't realize that I was going to fall hopelessly in love with this country and with this people. And I can still see their faces. Because they're my brothers and sisters. And as I've traveled around the world, I can be in all kinds of situations, in all kinds of settings, in all kinds of homes and churches and different gatherings and places, and I may not know any of the language, I might not understand any of the food, I might not know any of the customs, but when the Spirit of God is present, I am with family. That's why in this house of prayer for all nations, there's people who come here who don't know any English, but who will communicate to me through someone who does how they have felt the presence of the Spirit of God. It is His Spirit which makes us one, one family. One hope. This is huge. One hope. I love this scripture. 1 John 3, 1-3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears we'll be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. One of the things that separates us as believers from unbelievers is what it talked about earlier in that Ephesians passage. You were once alien and aliens without hope. But now we who are a part of the family of God, we have hope. We share a hope together. We're not home yet. We're going to have the mother of all family reunions one day. We're going to meet all of our relations. And it's going to take eternity for all the stories of His goodness to be told. And we have that to pour out into a world that is caught in the snare of despair. All around us are people who are so fearful. So despairing. And your testimonies this morning are like candles, like lights that you go and put on that and share. Not just here, but there. Of the hope that we have because of Christ. Hallelujah. One hope. One Lord. One Lord. 
in the parallel passage to the one we're studying in Mark 3, in Luke chapter 8, 19 to 21, Luke records it this way. Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. That's what it means to have one Lord. Now, it's interesting that the the context there, we're going to go into in Mark, the next passage is the parable of the sower. Luke puts his interaction between Jesus and the disciple and his family, I'm sorry, his family right after the parable of the sower. And if you remember, when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, he says, and the good soil, the good seed, the good soil is the soil that hears the word, retains it, and by persevering produces a crop of righteousness. And now he says, the good soil is those who hear my word and put it into practice. For my doctoral work that I'm doing, I've been studying a lot about kingdom culture. And I'm here to tell you that there is a kingdom culture that transcends all earthly cultures and there are values and behaviors and attitudes that are implicit and explicitly a part of that kingdom culture that transcend time, nationality, language, ethnicity, education, experience. There are values that are rooted and embedded here in the Word that we're called to put into practice. And that's how we are identified as part of His family. Because we've got one Lord. And we have one faith. John 6. Then they asked Him, what must we do To do the works God requires. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Wow. There's your job description. Believe. Have faith. Trust him. Believe the one that he has sent. We have one faith, like precious faith. One baptism. First Corinthians 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink. One baptism. As we've walked through and go into the waters of baptism and declare our allegiance to Christ. We are united in that baptism in Him and become a part of that one body. And the last, for those of you keeping score and waiting for lunch, we're almost there. It's okay. The Vikings and the Bears don't play until tonight, I think. So you're not even missing kickoff. All right. One Father. My prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those who have given me, you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me and I've made them, made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. We have one Father. We have one Father who is God over all. Because we have one Father, we've got family resemblance. We resemble one another. We resemble one another because we have a common parent. Oh, we may like different foods and sing different songs and all kinds of different stuff, but we got one Father. Because we're true family. We are true family. One body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Father. And because of this, we have one life together. And I read for you earlier, and I won't read it again right now, from Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, which immediately precedes the passage of Ephesians that we've been looking at, where Paul prays his prayer and says, together with all the saints, together, you have one life together, together to discover, because you need each other to understand the full height and depth and length and width of the love of God. You can't do it alone. You cannot live your Christian life in isolation. You live it together. That's why Paul exhorts the Ephesians when he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because it takes some work. Even with your earthly family, as wonderful as they can be, it takes work. With your Family, your full family, it takes work. As we close, I'm going to share with you one last thing. I love this. John White has written a book many, many, many years ago called The Fight, which is sort of an introduction to Christianity. And he writes in there about the family of God. And I just want you to listen, so don't tune out. Tune in for just one more moment because this is intricately connected with our life together. And here's what he says. You're a member of the family of God. You were cleansed by the same blood, regenerated by the same spirit, a citizen of the same city, a slave of the same master, a reader of the same scriptures, a worshiper of the same God. And the same presence dwells silently in you as in them. Therefore, you're committed to them and they are to you. They are your brothers, sisters, your fathers, your mothers, and children in God. Whether you like or dislike them, you belong to them. 
And you have responsibilities towards them that must be discharged in love. As long as you live on this earth, you are in their debt. Whether they've done much or little for you, Christ has done all. He demands that your indebtedness to Him be transferred to your new family. There is stability in commitment. To have too many choices in life renders us anxious and ill at ease. There are areas in our lives where God has taken choice away, not to enslave us, but to set us free from fussing and to liberate us to make creative choices. We are not allowed to choose our brothers or sisters or whether we shall be committed to them or not. They belong to us and we to them. We have no control over the fact that we are to love, care, and be responsible for them. We may fail to live up to our commitment and rebel against Christ, but our rebellion does not abolish the commitment. It will be there as long as life shall endure. You are committed to all your brothers and sisters. While to some you will be attracted, by others you will be repelled. With some you will discover an instant affinity. There will be spontaneous warmth and a pleasure in their company, but others will repel you. You'll find yourself avoiding them, being irritated by them, or else having no feelings at all about them except for boredom. But you're not to confine yourself to the favorite few. You're committed to the freaks and the oddballs of the lunatic fringe, as well as those Christians about whom you feel highly critical. You belong to people whose views you disagree with. It's better so. Where commitment's based on attraction, it is as temporary as the attraction. It is not, in fact, commitment at all. A relationship bound together by mutual attraction will prove an unstable relationship. More to the point, the parties to such a relationship, knowing they are compelled to work at being attractive, knowing this, are compelled to work at being attractive. And the moment they fail to be attractive enough, they may alienate the people who matter to them. Far from being a haven in which to take a refuge then, relationships based on attraction become a source of anxiety and strain. Somewhere in this world, you need a body of people who will always accept you and always care for you whether you are attractive or not. If you sin, they may rebuke you. They may demand that you repent or put something right, but they will never disown you, never abandon you, and never stop caring. Their commitment to you is not based on their admiration for you, but on the more solid ground of Christ's person and work. So when Christ demands you commit yourself to an enduring responsibility towards people you may not naturally care for, he is really doing you a favor. He is insisting that you facilitate the very thing you need a caring community whose members never fail one another. But where, you may ask, is such a community to be found? Well, it already exists and you're a part of it. It's not as though God's asking you to start from scratch and build such a community from nothing. There already is a community of saints bound together by blood and by water and by spiritual life and the power of God. And the fact that its members sometimes fail to live up to their commitment doesn't destroy the community. It's there. It's not going to go away. And your relationship with it is something that God takes with utter seriousness. Worship team, come on up. We are called to a life together. And I know some of you feel like you've just lived an extra life here this morning. Yes. 
You get overtime points. All right. But wasn't it good to hear the testimonies of all that God's doing? I'm not trading that for nothing. There ain't nowhere else I'd want to be hearing that. We're family together. True family. 